There is no such thing as race. None. Really? There's just a human race, scientifically, mm -hmm. anthropologically. Racism is a construct, mm -hmm. a social construct, and it has benefits. It has uh, money can be made off of it, and people who don't like themselves can feel better because of it. It can describe certain kinds of behavior that are wrong or misleading. So it has a social function, racism. But race can only be defined as a human being. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 93 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I am back as your host um, today and hopefully regularly from now on. Um, for those of you that have been patiently waiting for an episode for the last few weeks, thank you for your patience. Thank you for coming back uh, and tuning back in. Um, I hope you will not be disappointed by today's episode and the episodes that are coming out over the next few weeks. Um, it's taken me time to get back, get back into the podcasting um, mood, but I am here today um, with a new episode. Today's episode is going to be a bit different, um, I think, from what I normally have done, um, just because I think in the time that I haven't recorded... I've been thinking a lot of things um, and about a lot of kind of issues and things happening in the world today that relate to race and racism. Um, hence my starting point with Toni Morrison, who is someone I've been thinking about a lot over the last few weeks. Now, Toni Morrison is an author um, and her books include Beloved, The Bluest Eye, Song of Solomon, Sula, um, Jazz, Home and... Her work is described to be an unflinching exposition of racism, violence and sexism um, as she tends to write about the black experience from slavery, reconstruction, um, the Great Depression, the Korean War and just kind of general life um, for uh, many black characters uh, in America. Um, her work has won her Nobel Prize for Literature, Pulitzer Prizes and countless other awards um, and honorary um, nominations, degrees, you know, you name it, she's won it. And unfortunately, um, she passed away in 2019. Um, and I was thinking about her because of something that she said um, in 1975. In a keynote address at Portland State University in 1975, Toni Morrison said, The function... The very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language. You spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly. So you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Someone says you have no art. So you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms. So you dredge that up. None of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. I think in this instance, I was drawn to the opening um, of the quote, this idea that racism keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. It keeps you from doing your work. I think this resonated with me so much now because I feel like we're in a cycle uh, when it comes to not just racism, but a lot of things in the world. And it just seems that things just keep happening again and again. And I have the same conversations again and again with the same kinds of people again and again, either proving, disproving, agreeing or disagreeing on certain things. Um, and I had a list of 
four things I wanted to talk about when I planned this episode. I think I planned it like last week, early last week, uh, which would have been mid-January, um, if you're listening later on. Um, and some of the things I'm going to talk about today hadn't happened yet. But the four things I was thinking about are all things that I've spoken about before that have happened again. And they were uh, racist hair policies, uh, school in Birmingham, the new hostile policy. And I say new, it's just the old one, just back again and being named as such uh, by the Tory government. Um, the renaming of roads and schools. Um, in order to push back against um, some of the, shall we say, less positive, shall we say racist, shall we say problematic, however you want to describe it, um, you know, naming uh, and systems that were in place that allowed these places to honour um, things that shouldn't really be honoured um, when we look at it now uh, in today's perspective. Um, and so thinking about all those things that I initially wanted to talk about today, then thinking about Tony Morrison... Um, and the fact that the function of racism, the serious function of racism is distraction, because all we do is talk about these things again and again and again and again, and nothing actually changes. Um, yeah, that's that's where my mind was um, this week. Um, and I wanted to basically explain all that um, and talk about some of those things I mentioned and, and what's happening in the UK uh, and in America a little bit today. Now, the thing about racism is that it all operates and it fits within a wider frame of white supremacy. We often think about racism, I think, as this kind of internal, personal state of being. Someone having a set of opinions that are prejudiced, for example, um, and that's within them. That's something that they need to work on as a personal issue um, and it is their personal problem and it's a fault of them and them themselves. Um, however, I think more and more the racism we see today um, functions within, as I said, this wider system of white supremacy. And this is a system that essentially leads to black police officers beating a black man to death in the street. Um, police officers are, are there to protect and serve. Um, it's hard to understand that and it's hard to understand how people might call on racism as a problem. Um, but when it comes to the treatment of, of black people... Um, and other non-white groups as well by the police. Um, you know, it's it's the only word you can call on, and it, it does make sense when it fits within this system. Um, it's also part of the same system, I would say, that allows for the video of uh, Tyree Nichols' murder to be used on social media in news outlets, um, to be repurposed, distributed and shown to re-traumatise black people, as if this long historical suffering um, that black people have had to see isn't enough, you know? When we think about it, a lot of people would have watched the murder of George Floyd as it got passed around on social media. But thinking back to that, yes, there was, you know, global protests, um, but now three years on, nearly three years on, what was the purpose of that video? Did we need to see that? Um, do we need to see such abhorrent violence perpetrated onto black people for us to actually understand that it exists, it happens, it matters and it needs to change? Now, one of the issues, I think, with the way we think about white supremacy is a lot of people go straight to a group or an, a visual image of a group like the KKK. You might just think straight there, you know, extremists, completely far removed from the ordinary 
people that we might understand to be part of society, although they were very much ordinary people and still are part of society. Um, but I think the term is is so stark and it's so it seems so kind of big as a concept, um, but it really isn't um, because it's part of um, a system that essentially creates a society where white people often are in the centre they are centred, their experiences are centred, and everybody that doesn't fit that are on the peripheries, on the margins, okay? It it doesn't necessarily mean, though, that non-white people don't also uphold this system. Um, it doesn't just mean that all white people uphold this system, because a lot of the time they do not. Um, pushing back against this system and its extremely long-standing roots is going to take more than just single individuals because essentially it took more than single individuals to build up in the first place. Um, And whilst there are so many individuals that do exceptional things every day to push back against this system, to push back against racism, to push back against prejudice and discrimination, um, they do this in spite of the system, not because of the system allowing it to. Another kind of misconception, shall we say, about white supremacy is this idea that it's always intentional. It's not always intentional. Um, And unfortunately, it's probably so ingrained within some of the um, institutions in the Western world that it becomes very much commonplace in things like, for example, the medical field. Um, I have a few people I know training to be doctors and they're shown how skin diseases might come upon white skin but never black skin so then how as a doctor they do then they go on to treat people with black skin if they don't know what certain illnesses look like on them black skin doesn't turn pink you know it's not gonna turn blue in cold or that kind of thing it's gonna look a lot different um but if those things aren't taught because of the system of white supremacy um and the fact that it centers whiteness as the default experience um really does kind of highlight some of the the inequalities that are going to come up um, and are going to function within society and rear their ugly heads, shall we say. I think the case of Tyree Nichols uh, in itself highlights this. We have uh, black police officers that have have murdered him, um, but also a white police officer. And I don't think I've seen a news report that has really mentioned him until it was called out later on on social media that actually it wasn't just black officers. Not that makes it any better, um, but the reporting of it, again, highlights some of this. In a situation where a black man has lost his life, it's the white officer whose identity is being protected um, by Memphis police um, in this whole situation and scenario, again, centering whiteness and the experience of this white man. You don't think he will ever change and write books that incorporate white white lives into them substantially. I have done. Mm. In, in a substantial paradise. way. You can't understand how powerfully racist that question is, can you? Because you could never ask a white author, when are you going to write about black people? Whether he did or not, or she did or not. Mm. Even the inquiry comes from a position of being in the center. And being used to being in the center. And being used to being in the center. Mm. And again, we're thanking Tony Morrison today for providing the theory for which a lot of my thinking stands on. Um, and that was an interview she did in 1998 um, with a journalist called Jana Went, I believe. Um, 
who was really pressing her about the fact that she, you know, writes about black characters. Um, and I don't know if I would have had the grace that Toni Morrison had to answer that question in the way she did, um, because the audacity of of asking a black author why doesn't she write more about white people it's like the best example of of white supremacy um and of this uh, white lady centering herself and the experiences of people that look like her into the center of tony morrison as a black author's like world suggesting she should write about her like it's crazy to me and you know she rightly says i don't think you understand just how racist that question is that you've asked me um of course, this does not mean when we look at the wider frame of white supremacy that all white people are centred and all non-white people are on the periphery. Because there are other elements, as we know, um, things like class, gender, sexuality and other factors that also impact um, how people are marginalised and how they fit within different institutions and different systems that have been built up globally in the kind of world that which we live in. Um, and so Tony Morrison has wonderfully provided me with a lot of the thoughts, thinking and theory for this episode. Um, and I think I just wanted to put those clips out there from interviews that she's done and she had done in her lifetime, just to kind of explain and support some of the things that I've been thinking about. Um, but I wanted to go into some of the things that are happening today um, in Britain and in America. We've touched on the murder of Tyree Nichols, um, but also um, some of the things that were happening earlier in January um, that I kind of had and brought together for this episode. So we're going to talk about um, racist hair policies um, at a secondary school in Birmingham. We're going to talk about hostile immigration policy, proving that the lessons have not been learned from the Windrush scandal. Um, and we're going to talk about two name changes in a primary school and on a road formerly known as Black Boy Lane, um, and think about how this all fits into this frame of white supremacy, racism being a distraction, um, and the kind of audacity of people upholding these systems to this very day. We're going to cover a lot of things in this episode, I've realised, I don't know what I'm going to call it. You'll know because you'll have clicked the episode and you'll be halfway through it, but I don't know. <laughs> At this stage, 14 minutes into the recording, what I'm going to possibly call this episode. It might just have to be a January roundup or... The function of white supremacy just feels like it's a quite a big one, you know. As I said, white supremacy, I'm seeing the KKK, I'm seeing, yeah, terrorists, I'm seeing crazy things happening. But it's actually not that crazy because it happens pretty much every day. It's the systems that this world's built on. But anyway, back to Britain. Um, and we're thinking about um, Bishop Challoner School in Birmingham and their racist hair policy. Now... There was a tweet um, that was posted uh, by a lady whose daughter goes to the school and was told, essentially, that braids are an unacceptable hairstyle um, for school. And she tweeted, and I quote, My child is banned from the school playground slash canteen for her hair. It's neatly braided in a natural colour. I gave them a lesson on the history of black women's hair, cultural significance of braiding. They chose violence. At Bishop Challoner has a racist hair policy. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, end tweet. Um, and that was tweeted um, on the 18th of January um, because a young girl uh, who's in secondary school uh, had been told she couldn't uh, sit in the canteen, in the playground and be around students because of her hair. Her hair was essentially braided in like 
some very nice stitch braids with a little heart um, braided in in black hair. Um, not that it really matters at all what their style looked like um, because it's a racist policy. And this, when I heard this, all I thought about was the fact that this young girl's education has been disrupted. Her, her peace has been disrupted. Her joy has been disrupted. Her parents, um, the same for them as well. Um, they've had to take time out of probably their working day. They've had to take time out of their lives to rectify the situation. That should not have happened. Um, it's a racist policy. The policing of, of black hair, um, especially black women's hair, but also black men's hair in other, in other situations and cases is something that um, has happened for years. And it just takes me straight back to Toni Morrison's um, the very serious function of racism is distraction because in this time she's been distracted probably from her lessons um she's been distracted from play she's not been able to engage with students in the way she normally does um and we've all put time and energy into this case into calling out bishop challenger for their racism and again it is just feels like distraction it feels like pushing someone to take five steps back for no reason because there's nothing wrong with her hair and I don't really want to say too much about things like this because it just feels like distraction, distraction from something bigger, more insidious um, and distraction in her individual life, but also distraction um, within wider society of what are we not seeing when stories like this break and we're forced to think about, you know, the lives of this young girl and, and maybe the trauma that she's now been put under. Now, this idea that racism and the function of it is distraction does not suggest or mean at all um, that because it's a distraction, we shouldn't focus on it and we shouldn't give time to it, we shouldn't give energy to it and we shouldn't try and, and rectify it and, and offer support where we can um, as, as people, as human beings of the human race. Um, it just means that we have to think about why. Why are these things being pushed to the fore over other things? Um, that's, I think, what I take from Toni Morrison when it's, when I think about this idea that um, racism being a distraction. A distraction from, from what? And that's what we've got to figure out, from the what, you know? Not to say that we don't give time, give energy to this, um, but we've got to think about what it is taking our energy away from as well. Now, the second point I wanted to think about was, and I'm calling it the new hostile policy. It's not the new hostile policy. It's the old hostile policy uh, just brought to the fore once again. It never went away, really. Um, it was kind of, I wouldn't even say it was pushed under the rug. It was still in the room. It was still about, um, but we weren't thinking about it so much um, as things like COVID raged on and the cost of living crisis. Immigration has... It's sat in the back seat for a little bit, but I think it's jumping back into the front seat now um, as we think about um, issues with um, asylum seekers um, and the children, over 100 children that happened to go missing from a hotel where they were supposed to be protected and kept safe. Um, we think about the backlogs um, in people looking um, or waiting to be granted asylum in this country. And we think about the policy of Rwanda um, that the Home Secretary wants to put through so that um, people that are seeking asylum get sent there uh, whilst they do that, which to me makes zero sense. Um, it's, it makes less sense every time I think about it more.
wanted to read out a quote from a lady called Jacqueline McKenzie, uh, who is a lawyer and has represented many of the Windrush victims that were, you know, faced with deportation, faced with the states of being illegal in this country. Uh, she's a partner at the law firm Lee Day. Um, and she said, and I quote, the hostile environment never really went away, but for outward appearances, the language was changed. But it is distressing, nevertheless, to hear of a formal resumption of the ideas. She also added that given that the Windrush scandal is far from resolved, this is not the time for the government to be reinstating the very systems and policies which have been thoroughly discredited. And those quotes were taken from a Guardian article called New Hostile Environment Policies Show Windrush Lessons Not Learnt um, by Emily Duggan and Rajiv Sayal and that was uh, published on the 22nd of January this year. The Windrush scandal was able to happen in part because of the hostile policy um, and whilst that hasn't gone away, the language and the rhetoric of it is becoming um, more formal in, you know, speeches and and being used uh, to describe what's happening at the moment Um, and yeah it's just another case of things I feel like just being in a cycle. It was quite interesting to me that um, Baroness Floella Benjamin, um, she did an open letter to to Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, um, and I don't believe it was like responded to um i don't think a reply was was gained so she's written another letter and she starts it with i'm writing again with a heavy heart as i have not received an answer to my letter dated the 9th of january quote um but in this um letter which was really really interesting to me because something we've talked about on this podcast before but also just fits into this idea of white supremacy and how you know individual acts um can't really break down something as big as that and a system as large as that um But it it goes on to say, um, quote, Many Caribbeans are visiting the National Windrush Monument at Waterloo Station to find solace. As they have experienced extreme trauma over the years and the latest situation has increased the burden of trauma on the many dignified people who have suffered injustices. Some, as you know, have even paid with their lives. Um, This is an important year as it is the 75th anniversary of the arrival of the Empire Windrush and I believe it would show compassion and consideration if you were to meet some of the Windrush victims and hear firsthand how let down they feel by this development which comes on top of the still unresolved compensation scheme. The creation of the National Windrush Monument and Windrush Day were meant to build bridges but now hopes have been dashed. Now, I'm not going to be funny here. I'm very honest. I don't know in what world that statue was supposed to to change a system that has centuries of work put into it, roots firmly planted in the ground. I am not sure how a bronze statue at Waterloo Station was going to change that. I just need... I really would like people to understand that that if white supremacy was an iceberg, it would take an explosion in the inner core of said iceberg to break it down, not a pickaxe chipping away at the sides. In this analogy of white supremacy being an iceberg, a Windrush statue is a nail file. It's like going at an iceberg with a nail file. It doesn't make sense to me, personally. Um, unfortunately and I know there are a lot of people that championed um, that statue I was not one of them Um, the idea that Caribbean people are visiting that monument in Waterloo to find solace is interesting to me not something I've done and participated in but I'm not going to take that experience away from other people if they have Um, 
But how can you find solace in 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 a statue when, as she very well knows, um, the Windrush scandal has not been resolved. Compensation has not been paid out. People have paid with their lives um, for the mistakes of the Home Office and this hostile policy. Um, So, again, this system of white supremacy, these are some of the ways that it manifests um, when we think about, um, you know, the Windrush scandal and immigration and asylum in this country. And again, the actors and the participants are upholding the system in this case are not white people. Rishi Sunak um, and what's her name? Um, Suella Braverman. They are the Prime Minister and Home Secretary at the moment. Um, but it doesn't mean that just because they are non-white, they are going to be part of the people or the system that breaks down white supremacy Um essentially. And interestingly, um, something I've been thinking about as well is the 75th anniversary of the uh, Windrush's arrival. Um, And Windrush Day this year could be a very interesting time for celebrations, for commemorations to honour the lives of those people that came over um, for that generation. And it will be very interesting when things like this scandal don't look like they will be resolved by then. Um, It's very unlikely that the government are going to actually pick up the pace in six months um, or even less um, so it will be very interesting to see what these celebrations look like when there are, there are people that will have passed away will pass away um, not having received proper compensation and feel vindicated feel atoned for for what happened um, to them to their family members um, during this kind of re vamp um of immigration policy in this country and it's only something that's happening again it's in cycles um so who will be the next generation or group of people to be impacted um by this set of policies the idea of statues just being nail files at the iceberg kind of brings me quite nicely on to my uh final point about renaming things um when we're thinking about this big iceberg of white supremacy and how we break that down changing the name for the sake of changing the name doesn't make all that much sense i think if people are not educated on why the name is changing they don't understand it they don't get behind it because it doesn't make sense to them um and there were two instances of name changes that I'm going to bring to your attention. One of them is a primary school in Lewisham that was formerly Sir Francis Drake Primary School and has now become Twin Oaks Primary School. I think that was at the start of um, January um, because of links with the slave trade and Sir Francis Drake um, and his legacy that was coming into question. Um, The children and some of the stakeholders within that school, teachers, um, people in the wider community, voted to have the name changed. And um, I was speaking on Eddie Nestor's um, show on BBC Radio London um, and we brought we were talking about this. And and before me, I think there was a historian um, that was saying um, things along the lines of, um, you know, you're removing the past. Uh, were like experts on the history of Francis Drake consulted to actually share these histories um, of this man and and talk about you know the kind of opposing side to the argument that he's a problematic character and um, because of his links with the slave trade, um, you know, that was kind of the the point and conversation uh, that was raised before I went on the show and then spoke about the fact that I don't really think you're necessarily removing the past by changing a name. I'm not so sure the impact that this will have, only time will tell, um, by removing um, that kind of legacy with the school. 
um, the questions were brought up is judging people by today's standards, his people that lived historically in very different eras, um, judging them by today's standards, is that wrong? Um, I don't necessarily think it is. Um, I think that it's very much okay to judge people by today's standards, whilst obviously acknowledging that they did not live in today's world. You know, we can still look back and say, ah, they didn't think it was that bad then, but we think it's really, really bad now. I don't know why that is a problem. Um, I don't know why people struggle with that, to be honest. I understand, of course, um, the fact that you're judging people on something that they, they weren't aware of, potentially. But in every kind of society where slavery is acceptable, there are abolitionists, you know? In every society where all of the kind of ills that we look at now and say, oh, no, we shouldn't do that. There were people that were pushing back against it. So why couldn't you have been that person, if that makes sense? Um, that's always been my view on things like that. Um, another place that's had a name change is Black Boy Lane um, in the London borough of Haringey. Um, and it's been changed to La Rose Lane, although the road sign still has, in brackets, formerly Black Boy Lane. Um, and that is because of links with slavery um, and I believe a pub um, that's in the area as well had um, a similar name. Um, I noticed that the reporting on this story always had racism or racist in inverted commas, in air quotes. It was like racist, inverted commas, road name changed or name changed due to, inverted commas, racism. And it's like, it is racism if it's upholding or you know perpetuating things that are linked to slavery and that kind of thing I, I don't know why the racism goes in inverted commas I get it because it is an allegation and not you know necessarily to some people fact but um just an interesting observation of mine um but essentially um the road in Tottenham um has seen its name changed and it's very interesting because I've watched this story unfold and I've just been keeping my eye on it and it was first celebrated as, you know, wow, we're moving forward, we are cutting ties with um, some of the problematic parts um, in British history um, and when I think names do change, oftentimes anyway, um, there is an education gone into why that old name was, was bad or problematic or shouldn't be used anymore. Um, and it's now honouring John LaRose, um, who founded um, New Beacon Books. He was a political and cultural activist, poet, writer, um, and of course, publisher. Um, and because of that, became chairman of the George Padmore Institute, which holds a lot of um, Black Britain's archives, essentially, um, is held there. And a lot of um, black life is held in those archives, especially um, the work of John LaRose um, and his family that, that worked so hard to um, open New Beacon Books and keep it open um, to this very day. Um, and so, you know, I'm all for, for people like this who have gone kind of unnoticed historically being honoured um, in this way. Um, and I found it quite interesting that he was chosen uh, to be the kind of new name of the road. Now, unfortunately, this is all tarred because the road sign went up and then it was um, graffitied black marker or whatever it was all over the name. Um, and members of that road have actually put up in their houses or on the front of their houses or in their windows signs that says um, Black Boy Lane as what it used to be called. Another issue with it is the fact that it cost 
estimated around £186,000 to change the road sign. People are like, how can changing a road sign be so expensive? Well, it's not just a road sign, you know, it's probably all the admin um, for the houses on the road that now have to have their addresses changed and all that kind of stuff as well. I'm not sure. I believe they would have been compensated in part for that. Um, And, you know, the admin of that just sounds very long and difficult um, and a bit annoying. Um, but, you know, it's making it was making strides and it was it's there to make strides. But I wonder if there are people on that road that are still having Black Boy Lane as a sign on their house. Um, how far they were consulted with this um, and why there is such a pushback. Is it the fact that it's now being named after a black man? Is it just the fact that it's inconvenient? You know, is it? people upholding white supremacy um and struggling to see um this black man john the rose being being centered um in the naming of a road even though there are so many roads named after so many people um in in this country and uh, around cities and areas and places um it's just kind of how names work in this in this um country now just to bring us kind of full circle and back to tony morrison Thinking about all the examples I've given today and all the things we've thought about, and there have been a lot, so if you've stuck with me this far, thank you very much. Um, I'm just thinking the question we have to ask ourselves um, in all these situations and in all these changes and milestones and things being raised in political circles, social circles, wherever else, is in this iceberg of white supremacy... How far are we actually chipping away? How far are we burning down this iceberg and melting it out? Or are we just using a nail file? Um, Are we using a pencil? Are we using a a blunt butter knife? Um, And sometimes I think we are distracted by racism and by the corrections of racism that actually don't really increase or help materially the lives of of marginalized people in society that so much need that help and support um so i think it's just a call for this year to to think about really um when we see these kind of big headlines and stories like what is the actual purpose of this what is it doing what is it distracting us from and is it actually helping us to break down some of the systems that we see uh, that govern society uh, and that keep people on the peripheries and marginalised, um, that don't kind of fit this main um, frame of of who should be superior and hold wealth and hold power um, in, in the Western world. And so with that, I think I have said enough about a variety of random, well, not random, somewhat, you know, seemingly fused together topics um but i hope you have enjoyed this episode it is a very different episode and i'm not sure if i'll do more episodes like this or i'll go back to telling historical tales um about people events organizations and individuals and moments um but next week's episode uh will be being published in february because it is going to be february the 7th i think by the time next week comes around um and that means that it is Black History Month in the US and 
I do like a bit of American history. So we're going to take a dip across the pond and think about, again, some of the ways that uh, African-American history intersects black British history, um, starting with some of the US abolitionists that found themselves in Britain and the work that they did over here. So we're going to be taking it all the way back to the 19th century um, and looking at some of the crossovers between the US and Britain um, over the next month. So I hope you do come back for that. I hope you've enjoyed this episode today. Thank you so much for tuning in and being patient with me as I took an unexpected break. Um, But have a wonderful week. Thank you again for listening. Goodbye.